Mojo. Ah, yes, here it is. Got your mojo working. Pizzazz, oomph, zest, passion, energy, vibe. ACDC, the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, that can't be right. I got my mojo working. But it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you on the bus, the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. What do we do here? We just find interesting people and this week's guest is an interesting guy known as the Saltwater Buddha. You're in for a real treat today, guys. This is going to be a terrific show. But on the big red bus, what we do is we just find interesting people like Jamal. We chat to them, we extract their thoughts, their opinions, their tips, their tools, stuff that we can take plagiarize, put into our own worlds to get our own mojo working in and out of work. Do us a favor. If you know somebody, anybody, and we all know people who've got their mojo working, we all know people, lots of people who don't. If they don't have their mojo working, shoot them a copy of our link, get them onto the show. We don't have any uh, sponsorship or advertising on the show. It's all done for the love of mojo, for the love of voodoo. So share the love, guys. Get it out there. It helps us to get to more people and more people talk to us. It makes us feel good, doesn't it, mate? It makes us feel very good. Um, Quick question, though, without notice. Jamal. Do you reckon if he's the saltwater Buddha, do you reckon his Tim Tam belly might match mine? Look, I think it's a stretch. I think when you see the <laughs> what, saltwater the, the Buddha, belly? No, he actually being a he's like most surfers, quite svelte. Right. Oh, well. uh, but definitely not not your Buddha-like shape, my friend. He's certainly not going to pack down in the front or second row. <laughs> he is definitely going to be an, an outside centre. Uh, and just quick good day to the Withered Oaks too. Last game of the season on the weekend. Finished with a win. Well done, boys. So does that mean you're going to finish training and you're going to remain your portly self? <laughs> Is that the challenge now for, this, for the off-season? Mate, can I just say, I've actually dropped 15 kilos this season. So, you know, oh, very happy. 15? Yeah, down from 110 to 95. I'm Mate, very happy. Mate, that's fantastic. Yeah, doing well. Doing well. Doing well. Tim Tam? Tim Tam, thanks, mate. That'd be awesome. While, while we're on rugby, just quickly, too, um, a shout-out to a friend of the show. Was that your Tim Tam? That's my Doseki. <laughs> a shout-out to a friend of the show, Andrea Burke. Uh, she was on the show about a year ago. She plays for the Canadian women's rugby team. Her goal when we spoke to her this time last year was to make the Women's Rugby World Cup at the age of 36. She overcame an injury in July. She made the Rugby World Cup squad for Canada and they just, last weekend, beat the Australian Wallaroos to finish fifth overall in the competition. So, well done, Berkey, to the unicorn. Well done. Well done. Have you checked your email this morning, Mulder? No, why? Because I received something unsettling and I wondered if you'd gotten it too. The Mojo Mailbag. Before we get to the show, uh, as we said, we don't have any sponsorship or advertising, but you guys, the listener, keeps us going, gets the Mojo going in the studio. Thank you to Dean Oaks, who put up a lovely post for us on iTunes. You simply go into iTunes, find the Mojo Radio Show, click on ratings and reviews, leave us a one-liner, just throw us a bone. And uh, Dean Oak said, just stumbled across your podcast and congrats, guys. It's fantastic. Well done, especially your episode with Dr. Jason Selk. Now, that was an absolute cracker. We've had so much great feedback on Jason. <clears throat> Jason wrote the 10-minute toughness book. It's an absolute cracker, the most prescriptive book if you want to bring the mojo to a special event like a speech or a presentation or a sporting match or whatever it may be. So um, that was a good episode. And thank you for the comment. Lovely. I've got a nice one here from a guy who obviously knows us too well. (laughs) From all the way around the other side of the world in the UK, Colin Price wrote us a note the other day that said- Pricey. Pricey. Pricey, the Pricester. His note says, sitting here enjoying the first Dosecchi of the day would never have happened without tuning in to the two most interesting drinkers in podcasting. <laughs> the power of the podcast. <laughs> He's obviously on to us, mate. There's a segue into our saltwater Buddha. Absolutely. I'm Anna Devenna. I'm also known as the Sleep Muse. I help people get a great night's sleep. And often when people are struggling with sleep, I suggest that they listen to the Mojo Radio Show. And when they do, they fall asleep. 
instantly. <laughs> Settling, kids. Here's the backstory. I often collect good blogs, put them into my pocket and read them when I'm travelling. And I found quite a few stories by a guy called Jamal Yogus. And I think it was his style of writing and the approach he took to life that really got me. And I started following Jamal's work. Jamal Yogus is described as an outdoorsman. He's a guy who loves the outdoors, particularly the surf. He's an award-winning writer. He's a teacher. And he's the author of a well-known book called The Salt Water Buddha. And it's, it's actually his memoir where as a kid he ran away to Hawaii and he got himself in a bit of trouble, ran away to Hawaii, he went surfing, then he discovered Zen, became a Zen monk, and then ended up being a writer. And it's just a fabulous story and there's loads of learnings in what he wrote. So I got in touch with Jamal, threw out a bone, uh, he grabbed it and has agreed to be on the show. So we've got him on the line. Jamal, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thank you. You have an intriguing background, an intriguing means of life. I'd be curious that when people walk up to you, Jamal, and say, hey, man, what do you do? How do you like to answer? <laughs> sort of like the weather, you know, it's always <laughs> it's always changing. And literally the day that they ask me, it probably is different than the week before because I'm still somebody who's a mutt really in terms of employment where, you know, one week I might be teaching a mindfulness retreat and um, the next week I might be doing a journalism story and um, or working on a, a book. Um, so you know, they all cross over. There's sort of a Venn diagram um, where all the circles cross over. And I guess that is in, uh, I guess the, the, where they all cross over is just, you know, learning how to live more fully, you know, um, whether it's doing travel journalism or, meditation, surfing, or telling stories, uh, from my own life and books. Um, you know, I think the core is that I'm, I'm hoping to help people and myself just, you know, take life by the horns and live it. You, you talk a lot about your writing and you're a successful author. And we were saying just before we started recording, you've actually been out to Sydney, Australia as an author doing book signings. And you talked yeah. about your writing and being able to do it through different lenses. Can you just describe what that means? Like what are the different lenses you use when you're writing, Jamal? Yeah. <laughs> Again, there are a lot of them. I mean, um, I started off in writing as a journalist and, when, and you know, I was just doing that straight up like objective reporter, you know, goes on the scene kind of thing. And then um, pretty like a couple of years into that, I was doing fairly – fairly well in it. I could see carving out a life in magazine writing in particular. I had a staff writing position. Um, but I had this, I'd lived in a Zen monastery after high school and I almost became a monk. So I had a very, I had this sort of internal life, uh, had a spiritual side and I wasn't revealing any of that in my journalism. I just thought that would be my ruin if I ever <laughs> let on to all that. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um <clears throat> but one day uh i think i was between jobs and i just said you know i'm gonna write a story that's pretty harmless about how surfing and zen have some overlap you know when you're out there you're you can make some metaphors with the waves that connect with eastern philosophy it's also contemplative because you know you can't bring your cell phone and you're out there with nature etc just a short piece but, um, and I was kind of scared to let it go because I was like, ah, do I really want to go, you know, be vulnerable and talk about my own sort of personal life. And I did. And of course it ended up being like the most popular article I'd ever written and it, it buzzed around. And, <clears throat> and then I just realized that, you know, saying something that is from the heart and true can have a lot of power. And when people you know, sometimes what you're most afraid to do is, uh, has, and when you do it, it does have power. So I started writing 
that's when I wrote my first book, Saltwater Buddha, which was about a memoir about running away from home when I was 16 to learn to surf and running into meditation and living in the Zen monastery, et cetera. And, um, and I was, and that was a different lens completely. That was like, but I was trying to use my reporting senses to write about my own life. So look at it from a bird's eye view and say, Hey, isn't this kind of like a comedic B grade film? (laughs) (laughs) It's like 16 year old runs away and is looking for the meaning of life. It's like, you could either write it in a really earnest, like overly sentimental or melodramatic way, or you could kind of write it as a, as a, even though it's in the first person, I try to take that bird's eye view and say, Hey, like, you know, this guy can act like kind of an idiot sometimes, but look at, he's learning lessons along the way. <laughs> and that's kind of the lens I've taken on as a memoirist because it always feels a little precious to be like under 40 writing a memoir at all. And, um, so those are two lenses and then there are others as well, but I know I could, I don't want to bore you. (laughs) (laughs) So when you, you when you ran away, you ran away to Maui, nice place to run to just quietly. One of the most beautiful places in the world. Uh, I'm just curious. I, and I've heard you talk about this, Jamal, but I, at the age of 16, you were getting yourself in some trouble and you said trouble seemed to follow you and you seemed to be the guy that got caught and then you made this decision to get away. There's a lot I want to unpack in that, but you can go down two routes. You either go to the route or you keep doing it, and who knows where you'd be today. Or the other part of it is you, you make a decision. Do you remember the actual moment where you made that decision or the catalyst where you said, I have to actually move somewhere else? I remember thinking I needed to do something drastic um, when I just kept, you know, it's just sort of, seemed like, you know, when it rains, it pours. I'd just gotten suspended from school for, like, smoking a little weed in the parking lot. <laughs> and then I'd been, <laughs> been, you know, I had, a, I had like, a DUI. And, again, I, I, I was at a big high school. There were kids doing things that were far worse than me, but I seemed to be the one just getting caught. And I thought, do I have some unconscious desire <laughs> to be caught? I don't know. But I, 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 um, I recall flipping through the newspaper and seeing these flights to Maui that were really cheap. And I thought, hey, um, I had been having these dreams. This is literally true about saltwater islands. I had this dream where I was breathing underwater. And in all these dreams, I felt really free. And we lived on islands when I was little off the coast of Portugal. My dad was stationed there. And we were, that was kind of the last time I remembered the family being cohesive. We were all four of us. We were at the beach every day. My dad was a big body surfer and surfer. And so we were, I think those islands represented to me this lost time, you know, of childhood, also pre-divorce, et cetera. I couldn't put all of that together, but there was the ad in the paper. And I just thought, hey, I could, you know, I could put together a few hundred bucks and get that ticket. And so, you know, it was just one of those things where it's like opportunity met me when I was in a vulnerable place. And, um, I, you know, I had just enough to make, to make that one way flight. And you, you just mentioned freedom. And I heard you say that the actual symbol of freedom doesn't end up being the freeing thing. You have to turn inwards. Can you just run that for us? Because I believe there are a lot of people who have this view of freedom and have this dream of having freedom. But I'm curious to understand that you can have that dream of it and that symbol of having that freedom ends up not being it. Yeah. What does that mean when we need to turn inward? What are we looking for? I mean, that's the question. And it. Um, I think you need a symbol of freedom to start with. And actually, mm. you know, even all the paths that tell you to turn inward, they they kind of entice you with these symbols, whether it's like a, you know, uh, a saintly figure or a, a place that seems external to kind of get you in the door. <laughs> and then, you know, you realize that it's not about that symbol. It's about, you know, what you do inside. And, and Hawaii has that similar quality. And anybody who lives in a place like, you know, we do, like Sydney and San Francisco sees this day in and day out, you know, here are people living the dream. Um physically speaking, where, you know, they have the house, the car, the place on the beach or, you know, and, and yet internally, you know, they're in a cage. And, um, 
And so it's been instructive to me. Like that was the first real lesson in that when I flew to Hawaii and I was looking for freedom out there on an island, literally paradise. And um, then you get there, you have no money. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like obstacle after obstacle was, was hitting me and I'm eating avocados and things and trying to find a place to go to school and live. There were plenty of just life obstacles and um, didn't have the usual support structures of friends and family. And so I was just, I was finally, and I think you have to hit rock bottom sometimes to really want to turn inward because the inward work is sometimes the most difficult. You really have to look at yourself and you really have to, um, to, to want to do it. You know, if you can just jump to the next distraction, you probably won't. But at that point in time, I realized I needed something. And that's when I started a meditation practice. Um, and it was very simple, you know, just sitting down for the first time and breathing, no external stimulus to help you help distract my mind. And one, I realized how difficult that was, that the mind is really wild and jumping in all these places. And that's the sort of the first insight of meditation. But then two, as I did it, there were just brief spaces between sort of those wild waves of thought where it was like, oh, there's something there that's uh, peaceful, you know, kind of has a childlike joy. And, and that was a glimpse that made me want to go deeper because it was like, yeah, in high school, I mean, it's you're in the epitome of the swirl of the popularity contest. The only thing you can imagine bringing you happiness. It's like, you know, you're living like the Kardashians. Like the only thing you can imagine bringing you happiness is external validation. Like give it to me right now in every way, shape and form. And, and then this was something new and in such contrast to that. And, um, and it interested me, but you know, you go a little bit, down that road and then you sort of um you know you also need to cover the bases of basic livelihood and um but i've found that anytime i sort of get caught mistaking those external shiny symbols as what's going to bring ultimate happiness it's like i fall flat on my face and i have to turn back inside and do the internal work and it's a it's a balance obviously on that note jamal do you think that the internal validation comes when one understands their own true purpose, like understands what success really means for them as an individual, if it's not the bright, shiny objects. Do you think that internal validation is, you can find that by knowing about yourself and your own true purpose in life? I do. I do. I mean, I think it's layered, like you said. Um, You know, you can be living in a way where you're doing all the right things, but you're just basically going through the motions of like somebody handed you a form and said, Hey, look at, you know, you go to school, you get a job, you make money, you get married and you kind of look at everybody else and say, well, what are they doing? That, that looks good. I'll follow that. And maybe you even are doing something good. Um, but you have a sort of emptiness inside because you haven't gotten to know who you are and, and you haven't found that purpose of like, these are my gifts and talents and my passions. And I'm trying to align that with my way of you know, my career, um, or at least, um, align, you know, be able to do some of that in your life, whether your job makes that your passions possible, or you're able to align your job with your passions. You know, there, there are various scenarios, but I do think you can kind of, um, that takes some um, getting to know yourself uh, to be able to even know what your passions are and what your your gifts and talents uh, are. So there's that level um, of internal validation of just saying, you know, I don't need to necessarily be living this shiny life that my neighbor is where he's getting all this praise. But if I am doing something that gives me purpose and, and, and it feels like, you know, what I was sort of put on this earth to do, um, then there's a sense of satisfaction in that, of knowing that, you know, 
and, and that that evolves you know it, it can be I, i'm not sure for any one person there's like one thing that you need to you know a shining diamond where you say oh i've discovered it and now it's like i've locked onto it but it's you know there's some element of understanding what your values are and then living a purposeful life that doesn't harm other people but somehow i think ameliorates the world because but again i think that comes back to the internal because i think when you do some uh reflecting on the mind and sort of just the nature of being there's an automatic uh understanding of how similar we are as human beings and how we're all sort of we all suffer in a similar way we're all looking for happiness in a similar way and that connects you to the suffering of humanity i think and the and also the commonality of humanity so it's like that's reaching into your fundamental i think core of compassion and then from there i think purpose evolves so it's like you know whether you're meant to be an artist or a psychologist or a, you know a construction worker it's like that basic desire to do to connect with something good i think um brings a lot of uh satisfaction and internal validation where you don't need you know necessarily the uh external validation and i think that but I, ironically i think the external validation comes more naturally when people are are aligned with them who they really are i love that idea of if you can work out your gifts and your talents align that with your purpose and then align that with your job that i think that's gold i think it's, it's robert's a gold buddha i think we've got this gold golden zen right there i think it's the it's, i think we've struck struck the golden <laughs> buddha that's gold I'm just rubbing the golden Buddha's belly. Well, it's an interesting, Jamal. Both both Robo and I shaved down for this uh, interview today. We well, in fact, we didn't have to shave. We just had to polish. We just got a polishing cloth and just shave, just polish both of our bald melons. Just buff um, it up. So we look a bit. Well, he looks more like a Buddha than I do. Let's face it. Um, you you were studying Zen in a monastery, and you had the chance to become a monk. And you've chosen not to. Are you are you using the skills you learnt in studying Zen in the monastery? Do you use them in your day to day now? And although you didn't become a full blooded Zen monk, do you still consider yourself to be a Zen monk in terms of your attitudes and your way of life? Good question. I mean, yes, absolutely. I use uh, what I learned in the monastery every day, and the more better um so uh yeah i mean i think in the beginning i come i i looked at meditation and i i latched on to zen one because um it didn't say you should take anything on faith it just said look investigate your own mind see where sort of the root of suffering is and if these practices are helpful then use them and so you know it was very uh you could very like start where you are kind of approach and and uh and i liked that but then i also liked i was a 19 year old kid and the, and zen had this kind of this particularly the japanese and chinese traditional brands of it had this sort of machismo to it where he's like how long can you sit how, how stoic can you be and uh, we would do these very intense retreats where it was like 14 hours a day and still sitting. And so you sit and sit and sit and it's very, it can be very painful. It's like an extreme sport. Um, and, uh, and I liked that as a, as like a, a teenager, because it was like, I'm going to conquer this and I'm going to conquer my mind and I'm going to get that enlightenment. <laughs> and, um, and you do get some, the fantastic states of mind on these retreats. I mean, you can get to a lot of the places that they describe, you know, serene or, you know, body sort of dissolving and feeling oneness and et cetera. But at the end of the day, you come back to your normal everyday life and you have to integrate it into your emotional life. And, and it's what, one reason in the Zen stories, when people meditated too long, they would kick them, the Zen master would kick them out and say, go get a, 
go get a job or go down to the marketplace and get some bread or build me a house or something because they wanted them to integrate these big insights of deeper connection with the universe um, into everyday life because that's the point. You know, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. That's the famous Zen saying. And, um, and so to, to an extent, you know, I felt like I just wasn't ready to commit to monkhood for life. I do think it's a great path. But when I left and my abbot at the monastery advised me to go to college, I saw it as this great opportunity to say, hey, can I use the world's obstacles to be teachers, just like the ancient Zen masters would kick their uh, students out of the cave and say, hey, you know, go get some life lessons. And, and what I learned um, over the years has been that it's not a, so much about like conquering and the macho, I'm going to get that enlightenment. It's, you know, about accepting ourselves as we are in this moment. Like that's the ultimate Zen thing. It's not saying, you know, Suzuki Roshi, the Zen master has the saying, waves are the practice of water, thoughts are the practice of mind. And so meditation is not about nullifying the thoughts and dissolving into a void. It's about accepting the thoughts as they are and not being caught up in them, if that makes sense. Like you can be wrapped up in a wave or, and, and sort of churning and fighting it, or you can just let go under the wave and the wave passes by and you come up and you're okay. So meditation is kind of about learning to like accept that wave, let it go, and then maybe even ride it <laughs> once you get, you know, to a more advanced stage. So uh, ride it and let it go. So, I mean, that's life, right? Every day we're having these big emotions, especially I'm the dad of three boys under six, you know, it's like that, this is the most extreme sport of all <laughs> parenting. <laughs> and, uh, and I have to, I mean, if I don't have that, if I don't have that, uh, ability to take a step back from my own mind and say, okay, you're feeling angry right now, but you know, maybe it's not a wave you want to ride. Um, yeah, that's everything we learned in the monastery and I need it day to day. I like that notion though that people, monks could sit and meditate but then they'd be kicked out to say, well, now go and do something with it. And I think it's, there's, a, there's a big issue today with people searching for content and content and content and content but they're not taking the time to think about how they turn that content into knowledge and then the gap then between knowledge and wisdom where you need to go and do something with it, succeed, fail, learn, that creates wisdom. And I saw a blog recently where somebody talked about the fact that it used to be about wisdom, then it was about knowledge, now it's being replaced with content. And I like the idea of that notion of kicking them out of the, you can't just sit here thinking about it, you actually go up to real life and go and apply it and learn something. I think that's just a beautiful piece of gold for, for everybody, for parents and people working. And it's all very well to keep reading and keep looking at YouTube clips of inspirational pieces, but you've got to put the rubber on the road, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, that's Zen in a nutshell because, yeah, you can't just practice intellectual Zen. And I mean, we're, we're at a very interesting time where you can wire up a monk and say, oh, look at how beautiful meditation is where you can have these powerful waves of compassion or powerful waves of serenity and reverses the effects of depression and increases. I mean, the, the science is, is growing increasingly impressive, but the scientist, one should note, has no idea how to do any of those things just because they can put it on a graph. And so they create the content, they create the study, that's all beautiful, but you got to sit there <laughs> and do the work. If you want your own mind to be able to to produce those feelings of happiness and compassion, so and similar, and it doesn't have to be meditation. I think you know, yeah, we are on this race uh, hamster wheel of content where it's like everybody, and, and the internet has sort of produced this circumstance where it's sort of like produce or die, and it's a to me, it's a sad state of affairs because. Everybody's just hustling to produce, 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 tweet, tweet, tweet um, without. And I think that just creates a lot of copycats where people are saying, well, what worked for them? Okay, I'm just going to recreate that because, you know, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. And then 
I don't know where that ends. And I think, but I, I do, I guess, have some hope that I think the, there's still a, 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 a premium put on quality. And if you have, if you do, uh, the work, you know, whether that's going out on a, on a, on a long hike in the woods or something and really, or along with reading the books and stuff, um, and really reflecting, taking the time to come up with like, what is your truth? And then you, you do something with that. I think it's going to have more power than just if you're ripping stuff off and, you know, re-aggregating them. If I rewind the interview back a couple of minutes, Jamal, you used the term investigate your own mind. And I suspect you're doing that on a daily or weekly basis where you take the time to turn inward. What, what have you discovered about your own mind or your own thinking in the last hundred days that you can articulate as a discovery? Like what have you discovered about your own mind or thinking? I think the, the insights are often uh, similar to the old ones in that, you know, I'm usually seeking out pleasure and avoiding pain. <laughs> That's the, uh, <laughs> it's constant. That's what the way we're wired, right? It's just the bi- survival biology is like, you know, mm. seek out the pleasant, avoid the pain. And, um, it's so, um, it's okay. It's just, that's the way we're wired. Um, but then to notice how, uh, that's always different. It's like maybe one week I'm seeking out, you know, my book doing extremely well or getting the best reviews or whatever. And then the next week it's like, um, you know, seeking out, uh, you know, the best vacation, whatever it is it's it's usually a state of seeking you know that we're we're constantly in and if we don't take just a moment to find a little space there and notice how the seeking mind never stops it never like takes a break and it is creating some angst underneath it's like well here i'm just driven all the time and for me meditation kind of investigating that and looking at it and going, okay, there you are again. You're still creating all this angst and, uh, and worry. And, um, to a degree, maybe I'll listen to a bit of that just to get my work done. Um, but I don't need to take it, uh, create an identity out of it. You know what I'm saying? Because say I've just been on a book, on a book tour. So of course, like, you know, you want to get the good reviews, you want people to come to your, your book events and et cetera. But you're going to have uh, disappointments and you're going to have highs and lows. And, and so I try to just take a step back from it every day, even if it's just, you know, five minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour and say, okay, these desires are, they're biological, I'm programmed to do them and they're suspect and they're putting me into a state of being where I'm not always happy. And the ones where I'm just driven into sort of downward spiral of identity or just negative storytelling around a disappointment, I just can let that go because it's unhelpful. And so, you know, I, I was doing that, the same exact thing at 19. There's nothing new. It's just I'm latching on to different stories and different, you know, silver things to chase. You talk about being an urban monk, and I just, I just, I just love the name. It'd be a great name for a band, Robbo. The Urban Monks. We shave our head and wear robes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the Urban Monks. And uh, be a lot of, mm, but I think I'm, I, I'm, I'm just whiteboarding it. Um, in today's age, somebody listening to this show, Jamal, who is in the corporate world, and you, you straddle a lot of different worlds. How would you describe the urban monk? Like, what is that? Is it a good place for us to be? And how do we how do we start to make our way into that space if it's positive? Yeah, I think um, I think an urban monk is um, a good metaphor for somebody who is living uh, in the wilds of modern life. Um, you know, big waves, the big city these days, it's, it's big emotions. It's, you know, constant chatter and it is kind of stormy, but, um, we don't need, I think that is a healthy environment to practice actually. And if it, 
we take that environment and turn inward and find our internal strength in the midst of those challenges. And what else is urban living but that? It's, you know, challenge after challenge. And so, but it's a mindset thing. You know, being an urban monk, I think, is a mindset of saying, well, every one of these difficulties is, this is my teacher. And um, it's my patience teacher. It's my um, compassion teacher because I'm seeing, you know, all this economic uh, disparity, whatever it is, it's like everything is your teacher. And there's a sutra that I love called Avatamsaka Sutra called, that says, you know, the earth speaks Dharma, which basically means that the earth speaks truth. Um, and that is sort of true in nature when you go out into nature. Um, there's an automatic kind of, oh, I'm just being, and it feels very conducive to practice. But I think in the urban environment, it's also nature. We're, we're it. We've built our own thing. And so we need to find a certain harmony within that. And uh, so I think it's a, you know, it's a good place to, to it's advanced sort of Zen. And, uh, and when you feel too weighed down by all the challenges of the city, then you got to get out and, you know, take breaks. And so that's the model I talk about in my new book, All Our Waves of Water is like, Hey, use the challenges of everyday life. They are your teachers. But then at a certain point, you also got to change the oil and go in for a tune-up. And those are your retreats. And you got to you got to find out your own pace that works so you can bring that peace and equanimity back into the city because you can't grind it out all the time. It's ironic that you mentioned the Dhamma Lama 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 Sutra because that is actually Robbo and I's probably our favorite sutra of all the sutras. <laughs> <laughs> if you went through all the sutras, that'd be the one that we probably would have thrown back at you. So uh, it's just great that we're alive. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm just going to turn to um, to the Buddha, and we've had we've had a few chats with people about the Buddha, the lessons we can apply to our world. But something I'm interested in hearing you talk about is something the Buddha mentioned called the dukkha. What's what is dukkha? Goes on your chicken. <laughs> Sounds like that. I mean, it's the best. Uh, it, it is the best automatopoeia I've ever heard because it's like dukkha sounds exactly like what it is, just like a pain in the ass. But uh, <laughs> it, it, it is. Uh, the Buddha said um, his first noble truth. So right after getting, you know, he sat under the Bodhi tree for three days after, um, and said, you know, I'm not going to get up until I've I've ended suffering and had this epiphany that all beings have a Buddha nature, which is basically all beings have this seed of, of enlightenment inside them. And it's not something you can find out there. You find it inside. And, um, and then he said, and then when he went out to teach, the first thing he taught was this first noble truth, which is the truth of Dukkha, um, which a lot of people have translated that it means life is suffering. Not, I think, the best translation because it, one, it frames the Buddha as this downer where he's saying, like, all life is suffering, you just got to get out of life. That wasn't what he was saying. It, interestingly, dukkha translates as uh, basically like a, an axle that fits poorly into a wheel. So, like, sort of a square peg in a round hole. And he says, life is like that, basically. And it would the Aryans would drive a lot of horse-driven, ox-driven wheeled vehicles. And so he's basically saying Dukkha is kind of like a bumpy ride and life is a bumpy ride. So that's the first noble truth. And um, it, the fact that most people have said the first noble truth is life is suffering, second noble truth um, there is a, uh, you know, our desires and cravings create that suffering. Third noble truth, there is a way out of suffering. Fourth noble truth, the eightfold path, basically living a life of mindfulness and, and, and goodness is, a, is the way out. Um, if you frame that as, hey, life is a bumpy ride, meaning basically it's not all bad. It has joys and sorrows, but that, you know, our constant craving is at the root of that bumpy ride and that you can basically learn to embrace the bumpy ride and enjoy it 
and uh, live a good life through becoming aware of the way that you create your own problems. And so uh, it's pretty straightforward teaching. And then he went on to elaborate of all the ways to do that. But um, the first thing I think, the reason I think it's interesting is that he's setting up our expectations from the beginning of like, hey, don't expect life to be easy or you just, you know, put your faith in this and everything's groovy. It's like, no, expect life to have its, its pain. And the pain isn't going to go away, but the way you orient toward the pain and the way that you create excessive pain on top of the pain that's already there can be changed. So that's the way I interpret it. It's nice. You were writing, uh, I'm not sure which book it was, either your last book or one of your books when your father was dying. And you said that that time it had an impact on you, obviously with your writing and where your writing was coming from. And I'm just wondering what was, when you think back to that time and obviously your father was in the back of your mind or even top of your mind when you were writing, what was, what was the voice that your dad was saying to you? What, what could you hear your dad saying whilst you were writing that book? Um, it's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I found out my dad had terminal stage four lung cancer out when I got the contract to write my last book, um, All Our Waves Are Water. And I, uh, you know, I think it does a lot of things. One, I mean, I have three young boys and you feel right in the middle of birth and death, I think, when you're at this sort of middle age and uh, just contemplating the cycle of things and and your own mortality as well. I think being a father, you really feel that. Uh, and imagine them watching you and what lessons you're going to leave for them and stuff. And I, the first thing was that I realized I'd been hedging a lot in my writing. And even though I'd written some very vulnerable memoirs and things, uh, I felt like I was always trying to thinking about the frame and my audience and, you know, what was palatable to the market and et cetera. And I guess seeing my dad on his deathbed and I thought, I don't know when I'm going to be there. It could be tomorrow. It could be 70 years, but you don't know. And it's the one thing that you, one place where you know, you're going to be. And why not write a book that sort of leaves it all in the court? And, um, I try to get through some of those fears of like, what will the audience think? Or, um, and so I tried to do that more in this book. And of course, you know, every book needs a frame and, you know, it's like, you can't just say it all and leave your brains on a, on a page. But I tried to, <laughs> I tried to do that more and that was a help. And then, you know, the second thing was just, um, it made me turn more toward, uh, you know, what I believe about, I guess, consciousness and what happens when we die and just thinking more about those questions. Cause I'd be kind of come complacent. I think in a scientific age, you can kind of be like, well, science is dealing with that. And they say, you know, you just die and your brain dies and everything goes away and you still go to sleep. And, um, even though at times in my life past, I'd contemplated more of the questions of, of consciousness and, and maybe having some continuity after death, I wasn't really, it wasn't really front of mind. And going through this, my dad was a spiritual guy and we did, we did a lot of readings and meditating together as he was dying. And um, so it brought up a lot of those questions and just how I want to live um, in terms of... Uh, in a, in a, the situation is, and I've done a lot of reading on science and particle physics and neuroscience, and the situation is that nobody knows, <laughs> you know, what happens when you die. And there's a, a million and one reports of people having great adventures and scientists now saying, you know, that uh, people who are brain dead can see the doctors working on them when they're, uh, you know, in the hospital and stuff. So, it's like, well, there's all kinds of evidence that there may be 
a continuity. There's all kinds of evidence that is in question. And so I kind of decided at that point that I was going to live my life as if, um, it's sort of like Pascal's wager. It's like, well, I might as well live as if I am going to continue and I am, uh, infinite because, um, I think as the Tibetan Buddhists say, you know, death is something to take seriously and to prepare for. And so I, I've been living my life more in that way, I guess, um, which is, uh, yeah. How do you prepare yourself for death? Well, I mean, in the, t in the, uh, the Tibetans have done a lot of looking into this and for them, death is, you know, basically doesn't exist. It's just like, you, your body dies, but you continue on. And, and the realm between lives is, um, it's very similar to the dream state they say. And so they, um, say basically where your mind is in life is how your, your, uh, consciousness will be when you pass. So if you have a lot of, um, anger and, you know, complicated karma, you know, complicated relationships that are full of, of angst and, and whatnot that you may, you carry that into your consciousness. And, um, you can imagine that it's just like your dream life is, um, you know, when you're really traumatized in life, it can be, you know, have a traumatic dream life. So they do all kinds of things where they actually do lucid dreaming and they think it's possibly to lucidly die and basically just um navigate that realm they call the bardo which is called the between but that's getting into like advanced yogi stuff the other thing you can do is basically take care of your life and 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 cultivate friendliness cultivate um good relationships a warm heart all those things i thought to also help you um but basically, if you're living a good life and you're being kind to people and you're creating an environment of friendliness and warm heartedness around you, that's going to be what prepares you for for death. And then if you want to get into the complicated yogi stuff, yeah, there's a whole set of things that you can do. And it's very um, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I'm more doing the former, but I dabble in the on the ladder. There you go, Gary. We can rest comfortable that the Mojo Radio Show is preparing us for death. <laughs> In more ways than you know, my brother. Uh, Jamal, you've got three kids and I've heard you speak of them. I And this, this is a question we've asked a few people, everyone from psychologists to Navy SEALs to people who've been through good times, hard times, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What's in your mind with your lessons you've taken from Zen, from the monastery, from your writings, people you've met, what's the most important thing we can say to our children? I mean, it's got to be like, I think the Beatles probably nailed it. You know, all you need is love. Um, I think they just have to know. I mean, they've even, you've even seen studies on this. I was listening to a fascinating study the other day with um, kids who grew up, you know, poor and in, in, places where the schools are usually bad and um if they uh in places where they just um allow a basically have a helper who's with the state come around and give the mother a little more time just to spend with their child um they don't have to do anything special <laughs> like they don't have to say anything give them any special philosophy it's just Hey, I'm here for you, giving you love. And that one thing helps them uh, stay in school, you know, much higher graduation rates, much higher uh, um, ability to retain a job, relationships, et cetera. So they've done that like 40 year study. And I think about that regularly how we often want a silver bullet with our kids of like, this is the lesson I want to pass on to you. But the best lesson you can give to anybody is your awareness and your time and your sincere listening. And, um, so that's, you know, and not being distracted by your phone, you know, just time with them and letting them know that, that they, you know, they're the top and, uh, they're loved. 
And then I think the rest takes care of itself, you know. We had an amazing show a couple of weeks back, Jamal, with a lady called Emily Fletcher from Ziva Meditation and Ziva Mind out of New York. And she'd done this really interesting study or she'd seen the study on how gratitude, even even the practice of thinking about what you're grateful for can change the shape and health of your brain. And... I found that the science behind that quite fascinating. Are you are you are you a person who practices gratitude? And if you do, is it a journal thing? Is it a writing thing? A painting thing? Just a thinking thing? Like, how do, do you practice gratitude as a daily ritual? And if you do, how do you do it? Yeah, I try to, and I I find I'm not surprised by that study um, because I do find it to be one of the most powerful. Uh, um, feelings you can conjure and, and, um, in terms of meditation, um, you know, there's certain, uh, I find like the ocean to be incredibly powerful and that like, no matter what kind of day I'm having, if I just get out there for 10 minutes, like I can be restart my day. And I've found like the only other thing like that is gratitude. Um, where it's just, it's like an instant, um, restart, reboot. And so I just try to latch on to, um, you know, one thing that I, um, I'm incredibly grateful for. And it's usually often has to do with my kids. And I think, um, the fact that they're safe and the fact that we have, uh, everything we need, you know, to, to keep our family together. And so even though there are ups and downs in our jobs and, um, you know, it's like, we, we have the basics taken care of and, um, and just how lucky we are for that. You know, there are families who, who, who struggle, um, with that day to day. And, it's interesting. I got to go to this cool place um, called HeartMath that does um, these studies on heart rate variability. And they basically do studies on the zone, like what helps people get in that place where you're making all the three pointers and you're getting your ace in your tests. And they found it has to do with um, that you can look when somebody is in that place, their heart rate variability creates this pattern that looks like these really um, sort of symmetrical waves. Usually our heart rate variability is very variable and that's healthy. Um, but, uh, but when we get into this place of like, they call it coherence, um, the waves kind of become like these beautiful waves really that are, are repetitive. And, um, and so I was there and I, they wired me up and they were showing me my heart rate variability on the screen. And then they just said, okay, and this is when I just had, we just had our first son and they said, okay, now just think of your son and think of how grateful you are or how much you love him. And boom. It was like the waves shifted. And he said, that's what we're finding is like this, this is a shortcut of just when you love and you feel grateful and, and that loving feeling, it's an, it's a, it's like a shortcut into the zone or, you know, these flow states and, you know, com- you can use other things. You can use breathing and et cetera. And the Navy SEALs, again, have done all these different studies w- with their heart math. But um, but I thought that was so cool. I thought it was so cool to see it on the screen. I, I first came across you through the Saltwater Buddha book. How, just to, to close this this terrific interview, mate, how, how do you describe what, what's a Saltwater Buddha? <laughs> what is the book <laughs> or what is a Saltwater Buddha? <laughs> what is a – well – We'll, we'll, we'll link to the book in the show notes, but I'm just, how, how do you describe, uh, I mean, it's just such a cool title. How do you describe a, a thing or a person or a state of mind that is a saltwater Buddha? <laughs> well, it was interesting when I, a lot of people started nicknaming me the saltwater Buddha and stuff after this, that book came out. And I was like, no, 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 that's not the idea. It's not a, it's not me or not a human being. I, I had a, well, I loved this metaphor in um, that's been really used throughout a lot of traditions, but that we are all like waves on the ocean, and the ocean is our Buddha nature. So, um, 
so even though we feel like we're separate all the time and that we have this um, identity, if you were able to look at really like a particle physics level, say, you would see how, I mean, all the matter that we are is being constantly changed out by new matter, just like a wave is constantly new water. It's just the energy that moves through the ocean that is, uh, is the wave form. And so it really is true that we are kind of just made of, you know, sort of universe just, and there's some energy that's cohesive that's keeping us together, but, you know, we're not like these separate firm individuals like we think we are. And so I thought, well, yeah, that is, I love that metaphor and it gets to, um, gets the essence of some of these bigger ideas of, of connectedness. And, um, so, so the, yeah, the idea that, that, uh, and then I love the idea that, you know, you can sort of like the urban monk that you can, you know, we think of salt water too, as like, you know, something you spit out <laughs> and <then laughs> even in that, even, even in that, you know, the, 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 the awareness, the same, it's made of the same awareness, you know? So, um, so that's the idea behind saltwater Buddha. And I don't think of it as a thing so much of as just, you know, what we are. Well, mate, this has been, I think the word I'd use a beautiful, uh, interview with you, a beautiful chat. There's been wisdom. There's been actionable things, stacks for us to think about, but the, the philosophies, the thoughts, the wisdom, and the love behind it all. It's just been terrific, mate. People who want to explore more about you, your writing, your work, because you write prolifically in different places, uh, where where would you send them to, mate? Um, I guess my website, jamalyogis.com, but it looks like jamalyogis.com. It's J-A-I-M-A-L-Y-O-G-I-S.com. But I'm also on all the... Uh, social, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and so forth. Well, hopefully uh, we'll get to have a coffee with you on your next trip to Sydney, mate, because I'd uh, love to sit down and uh, shoot the breeze looking at Bondi Beach. Uh, that'd be fun. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a really fun interview, and I appreciate what you guys are doing. No, I've got to say, I've got to, I can always tell the quality of an interview by my scribbles and notes that I take on my own pad, mate, and uh, I've got stacks of stacks of stuff that I've taken down. This has been a real joy. And we know you have a, a, a schedule ahead of you. We won't hold you up, but we really appreciate time. We're very grateful, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. But, 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 but don't touch your dial because you've got a treat coming up with a batch of real big stars. The Mojo Radio Show. A nicer Buddha you would never want to meet. I, I just found his spirit so beautiful. I mean, he's got that typical Zen Maui cool surfing yeah. vibe about him. But I don't know. I think there's a lot. There's a lot behind Jamal and his writings. And what's been... What's been most interesting about the show for the last probably two years is that whenever we do a show around this whole thing about self-awareness and Buddhas and Zen and meditation and finding purpose and meaning, it really has become one of our most popular topics. So I think this show is going to resonate with our uh, Mojo Radio Show listeners. I would think so. So it must be something about surfing too because whenever we talk to surfers, you get this real sense of calm, being very centred. You know, you know what I mean. I wonder whether there's something to that whole sitting on the board and out the back waiting for that next wave just brings you down and calms you down. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, there is. But that's that's not anything new. I mean, I remember watching Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves in Point Break when he bought his first surfboard, and that young grommet said, "It's the source, man. It's yeah. the source." And from that day. It, the the thing with with the surf is it is like that. It's the same with nature. It's the surf. It's being in the mountains. It's being in the country. It is calming. It goes back to our paleolithic growth and how nature was a big part of our growing up. There is so much science behind why nature is so nurturing for children. Yet we just get caught up in our concrete jungles of screens and meetings and boardrooms and gyms and public transport. We forget to include nature. I don't think going surfing, I don't think it's any surprise that it's 
calming and it's like Lane Beachley said, you know, what keeps her centred? And she said, the surf, because it can be, it can teach you a lot of lessons when it dumps you into the coral. Yes. Da Vinci said simplicity is the ultimate sophistication and it's the simplicity of nature that gives us the sophistication of learning, but we don't go there. We we keep too busy to sit in nature and explore it. So the lesson, go for a swim in the surf. If you're feeling stressed, losing your mojo, go for a swim, go for a walk in the mountains, go sit in the backyard and look up at the sky. I mean, it's the simplicity of it that is sophistication, but we don't do it. We get too caught up. Mm. God of rock, thank you for this chance to kick ass. We are your humble servants. Please give us the power to blow people's minds with our high voltage rock. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Now let's get out there and melt some faces! The Mojo Radio Shows. Lessons in Rock. Your favourite word is interwebs, I've noticed. And I was surfing the interwebs this week and came across some inspiration from an artist we haven't played on this show in the last four years. Do you have any idea who that might be? Manilo. Manilo. (laughs) One word. Manilo. I have a funny feeling we actually have played some Barry Manilo early on somewhere. Anyway, I could be wrong. Negative. Pink would be the word that I was thinking of and the artist that I was thinking of. I found some audio inspiration from her this week and I don't think it needs any setup. I reckon we might just get out of the show here. We'll let the audio speak for itself. We'll play a bit of Pink out of the back and see everyone next week. What do you reckon? Recently I was driving my daughter to school and she said to me out of the blue, Mama, say yes, baby. She said, I'm the ugliest girl I know. And I said, huh? And she was like, yeah, I look like a boy with long hair. And my brain went to, oh my God, you're six. Why, where is this coming from? Who said this? Can I kick a six-year-old's ass? Like what? (laughs) But I didn't say anything. And instead I went home and I made a PowerPoint presentation for her. And in that presentation were androgynous rock stars and artists that live their truth are probably made fun of every day of their life and carry on and wave their flag and inspire the rest of us. And these are artists like Michael Jackson and David Bowie and Freddie Mercury and Annie Lennox and Prince and Janis Joplin and George Michael, Elton John. Um, so many artists. Uh, there was, it was, her eyes glazed over. Um, but then I said, you know, I really want to know why you feel this way about yourself. And she said, well, I look like a boy. And I said, well, what do you think I look like? And she said, well, you're beautiful. And I was like, well, thanks. <laughs> but I said, when people make fun of me, it's, that's what they use. They say that I look like a boy or I'm too masculine or I'm too... I have too many opinions, I, my body is too strong. And I said to her, I said, do you see me growing my hair? She said, no, mama. I said, do you see me changing my body? No, mama. Do you see me changing the way I present myself to the world? No, mama. Do you see me selling out arenas all over the world? Yes, mama. Okay. So, baby girl, we don't change. We take the gravel and the shell and we make a pearl. And we help other people to change so that they can see more kinds of beauty. And to all the artists here, I'm so inspired by all of you. Thank you for being your true selves and for lighting the way for us. I'm so inspired by you guys. There's so much rad happening right now in music. And keep doing it, keep shining for the rest of us to see. And you, my darling girl, are beautiful. And I love you. Thank you, MTV. Promise me you'd be around Uh-huh, that's right I took your words and I believed In everything you said to me Yeah, that's right Set for
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.